we're going to continue recording and, you know, questions and stuff that we might want to supplement the show with or whatever. So is there anything that anybody heard that they want to respond to, uh, ask about, challenge? <laughs> All that stuff's fine. You were talking about the nature of the theory. I've been really interested in, in hearing your thoughts on the theory of evolution and whether or not that is a legitimate, even just made, and, and your thoughts on whether we're post-science now. Uh, yeah. Kind of two questions. But since I'm with you all the time, you kind of probably know where I'm going. I'm going to go. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that we have had uh, conversations on the show before about evolution, and we agree that Darwin is wrong. <laughs> that there's something fundamentally uh, kind of missing there in Darwin's approach, and even the methodology in terms of understanding, you know, selection, natural selection. There's something something lost in the sort of how we understand uh, creativity. It seems as though with regard to evolution, and I'm not an authority on evolution, but it seems as though there are certain uh, anomalies. For example, uh, entropy and evolution seem to be, to be somehow fundamentally at odds with each other. So we have heat death on the one hand and growing complexity on the other. What do we do with that? But that's just, just one casual sort of observation. But I think uh, with regard to theory, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an attempt by a certain thinker to, uh, to make sense of the appearances without taking God into account. That's what's going on with that theory. Yeah, if you were interested, I'd refer you to the Touchstone article, um, where Barfield actually discusses the issue of evolution. And I, again, I found his perspective on this really intriguing. So I just refer you to the article that give you a, a quick summary about a page or so in. I kind of come, come at it at a different angle. I, mean, I, I think uh, there are a few things to keep in mind um, when you're thinking of it theologically, philosophically, from a classic Christian vision, um, a biblical vision. I mean, uh, the first thing to keep in mind um, is that the... the way, well, here, let, let me back up th to this point. There is nothing that, whether, whether Darwin, let's just say by magical happenstance, Darwinian evolution happened to be the means by which we all evolved, all right, for the sake of argument. It would not entail any criticism whatsoever whether or not the triune God is the infinite source of all being or not, or whether or not the Christian God is God. Because the Christian doctrine of God has to do with the fact that there is anything at all. Darwinianism assumes there's something there in order for it to evolve. Well, how, does, how is there any being apart from being itself? There isn't any. So that, there, Darwinism is no criticism against the Christian conception of God. Now, the question then becomes, is it the secondary means through which God created the world? My problem with it is that we have not looked at the actual philosophical and theological assumptions that are fueling Darwinism, which happen to go back to watchmaker philosophy and modernist conceptions of God that he's reacting towards, not the classic Christian view. So D Darwin is steeped in philosophical and theological assumptions, even in his own theory that owe themselves to modernism's heresy view of God, not the classic Christian view. 
Michael Hanby's actually got a brilliant book called No, no Science, No God, which is addressing those more fundamental theological issues. So until those things have even been sorted out, there is, in my view, there is no such thing as a coherent view of Darwinism. It's a, it's a philosophical and, on, on the metaphysical level, it's a, the, it's a philosophical and theological fraud. And then it's exhibiting itself to trying to explain how it can function in light of that fraud theology and philosophy. Yeah, or, no, or it's working with a straw man that isn't Christianity. Well, uh, that kind of gets what I was going to get at, is yeah. that what we're doing, what, what oftentimes well-meaning uh, Christian thinkers do is they fight on the ground of Darwin's own choosing. Yeah. So Darwin has established, okay, you can only stand in this area, now fight me. And he's created that area by assuming that what he's reacting against is a view of God that isn't really a classic Christian vision. And so, I mean, actually, to his credit, Charles Hodge understood that, even though I don't think he, he understood it enough. He wrote a little book because he understood what was going on on the, on the level of, of teleology. We've talked about that in other shows and different, different things. Well, he was like, kind of caught up. In he was still caught up. And that, that's vision, right? what I'm saying. He didn't push, push the uh, assumptions far enough. We're finally getting to a place where we can, um, and we, we realize that the assumptions that went into naturalism and arguments for it, that, that's a whole different level of what's going on in the lab or the test tube, but those, those, those things can only go so far. Once you move from the fact to the meaning, you've already entered metaphysical territory, and you can't escape the philosophical and theological at that point. And so, yeah. we're, so, so yeah. we've been in conversations with some of our naturalist friends. As soon as we start moving the conversation in this direction, they freak out. Oh, yeah. They don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> they leave the room. Well, they talk about, for example, nature as a given. I'm sorry. Nature isn't a given. There is nothing self-sustainable self about nature itself. Nature comes mediated as existing. Existence and nature are two different things. Nature is in existence itself because nature cannot not be. I don't want to get into all that, but, <laughs> but the thing is, is it, it, it isn't the most primal reality. Being is. And so we always encounter nature as it is. The isness is more primal than the nature, right? And so they can't account for the isness, and until they do, then how defining the form and the function of nature is a, is a debate. And that has nothing to do with what you look at in the test tube or, or guess about what its purposes are. So I don't, think they've, I don't think they've climbed the ladder of good philosophy or theology. I think they're still functioning as if they think they know what they're talking about. I don't maybe understand what they know. I, I don't know how to read their bone or the, you know, the different shapes of the heads and all that stuff. I'll, I'll grant it. But it doesn't matter. Until you've actually been able to sort out those other questions, how you interpret the others is, is up for grabs. Um, yeah, and the, the, e even if you accept the premises, the secret that people who do uh, evolutionary biology will rarely admit in public is that Darwinism doesn't work. This is it sort is of like inadequate a, to actually a, it's sort of like the CDC not being willing to own up to the failures of certain things that they... <laughs> <laughs> it, it really it is. It really so. is. Well, that, that was part of my question. Yeah. Now post-science. Yeah. Like yeah. Even, yeah. Well, and, and I think, I don't want to j jump ahead in, but, but the, uh, I, I think yes, and I think the reason is science severed itself from the transcendent a long time ago. 
and when you do that, you unmoor teleology from, from uh, there is no genuine natural kinds, forms unfolding in, in, in accordance to the purposes. These things become arbitrary and functional, so that, that things only have what appears to be a, a, a kind of nature by the way they function in terms of survival or, or, or reproduction, but not in terms of, of anything more than that. And so, so I, once that's gone... Uh, yeah, yeah, let me give you a book that, that goes right to the heart of what you're talking about, Zach. It's called The End of Science. It's by John Horgan. Uh, he was an editor at Scientific American. So this is a guy who uh, is an insider, or was, <laughs> until, until he said... Not anymore. Yeah, Don't look at the man behind the curtain. <laughs> well, I, I would add one other thing, that, uh, that Chris talked about the, the death of the humanities, and you know, science is sort of being the the theoretically the the uh, king in academia. The problem is that we live in society. We live in a culture, um, and that ends up trumping anything that's going to happen in academia. I'm sorry about using the word trump there, um, but in 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 the end when society really moves into a point where it believes that the only real reality is power, like what we talked about before, in the end, science bows to power. Yeah, I've, I've, got, I've, I've known people, people who have been friends of mine, still are, I hope, <laughs> who worked at NIH, National Institutes of Health, and it's as, you know, there are all the sorts of power games and intrigue that you experience in any corporate world environment is there. Yeah. So um, keep that in mind. There are agendas. There are uh, biases. There are money connections uh, all through that world. It has, when you actually... You know, when you don't know anybody in that world and you kind of can look at it at a distance and say, well, look at those demigods. You know, yeah. They're just sort of like floating in the air. They're better than us. They're smarter than us. But when you actually know them, <laughs> yeah, Dan, how you doing today? That's right. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I saw a meme the other day that said that 98% of all scientific studies agree with whoever funded them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it's too bad because this doesn't mean that good science doesn't exist. Right. I mean, we all right. are. We all are uh, given yeah, like the good art or anything. It's, it's within. It's within the confines that that it functions in alignment to what it's meant to do. But when you when it pushes itself out of that, it starts to ask metaphysical questions or raise those. It's moving out of its territory. It's not empirical anymore at that point. Um, when you ask the meaning of anything scientifically other than the meaning it has in terms of its function and what can be materially valued, you're already outside of it. Even to ask the question, what science is, is outside of the, of the terrain of, of science. I mean, you can't... Yeah, we, 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 had a, we had an experiment last week on what is science. Yeah. <laughs> Even the and statement, what is science? Because 32 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's more complicated. And I think this is the point of, of Lewis, Tolkien, and the Inklings, is that, it, that, that whatever we're not going to take from the medieval world, there's a lot there that integrated the phenomena, the scientific, within a, a horizon and a, and a vertical relation to God that allowed for us not to lose reality. 
and and what where we are today is is in a cesspool of people who've lost reality, and they're proud of it, and they think that that's fair fair game to assert their will on the world. The knowledge is power a bit. I have a question on Barfield's idea of the evolution of consciousness, and I think that you said that well we can't go back, but my question is sort of what if we could? What if what if or you know, what if that's a danger that we could in which we deobjectify de the world, but it without anchored without being anchored to God, it, it becomes like I saw two magpies today, and it means. Good luck for me, like yeah. that kind of world. And like, yeah. so what sort of, what sort of caution will the Christian take in sort of still trying to maybe not see the world too metaphorically? Or <laughs> yeah. Sort yeah. Of Bar Barfield. You might, you might want to repeat the question into the microphone. I don't know. Okay. Right. That's good. Yeah. Point. Um, okay. So the question was. Um, what if we could go back to the earlier medieval vision? Um, but that could lead us quickly into things like looking for omens in the number of magpies we see in the tree in the morning. Okay. Um, Barfield, uh, Barfield's answer to that, I think, is really kind of intriguing. What he says is that we, we can't go back and we shouldn't want to. Because just like the, our resurrected body will be superior, better than the pre-fall Adam, just like the New Jerusalem is better than Eden, so in the same way, where we ought to be heading toward in this final participation is superior to what we had in the original participation in the world. So we're, we can't go back, but what we can do is move forward into something that is better. And that's what we should really be looking to do. Um, we can't reject scientific knowledge. I mean, it, it's there, and it is, there are tremendously good things that have happened. Modern medicine, in most respects, has been a real benefit. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, th there are technologies that have made life better for us. There's no question about that. We don't want to reject those. We don't want to turn our backs on those. But at the same time, we want to, first of all, make them, have them assume their proper place. And, and they're, they're great servants, but lousy masters. Okay? We want them to, to assume their proper place. But at the same time, we want to recapture what was lost so that we can synthesize the two. And that, that is really a better way, a superior approach, than simply trying to turn the clock back and going back to the Middle Ages. And I, something fascinating here is the title of that book that Barfield wrote, Saving Appearances, uh, colon, A Study in Idolatry. Yeah. So this whole matter of the study of idolatry, how signs can go awry. Yeah, once they become, and I think that's the thing, uh, signs get severed from the... the um, the Logos and and the meaning of the Logos. I, I, I could come at it maybe a different way. Um, I, I think the Reformation, and I do think sometimes science tried to to um, put parameters on interpretation, you know. Um, stuff could go wild sometimes. You could start, you know, you could see demons in your soup, so to speak. Um, you mean they're not there? They're not there, that's right. Um, so there, there is the superstitious 
even in the medieval world. I mean, they were clearly talking about, you know, you know what things were in, what things were not. Um, I think the way, the, the way in which um, a healthy understanding of the richer web of meaning and, and senses of Scripture and the like um, were those that were governed by, um, by theological direction. Um, those grounded, I mean, it, it, there were no theologians working outside of a metaphysical interpretation of the Trinitarian God and the Incarnation as the frame to interpret all things. I mean, what is uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia? Um, it's, it's only once you understand the eternal relations of the Trinity that you understand the actions of God in time. So you can't just play around with God's actions and read them any way whatsoever. You have to, you have to understand the creaturely expression of them by understanding what we understand about God in eternity. Um, so what the, 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 metaf- the, the earlier theologians were doing is we need to go back to first principles. We need to go back, what is the most fundamental reality and how is that illuminative of the, that which is not most fundamental? So again, for that world, the spiritual and God was the most fundamental reality. So what do you study first? God. The Summa Theologia, understand God, the attributes of God, God in say, God in himself prior to creation. Another way of looking at it, the God-word relationship in John is prior to creation, right? So if you're going to read creation and all of its manifold symbols and everything else, you can only do it once you've understood it in light of the word-God relation. In the beginning was the word, not not the world. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him. So all things have their reference point to Christ. So Christology then therefore governs the interpretive um, parameters of the creation. And so they have a measure, but it's a richer measure because Christology is both divine and human. And it becomes the, 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 the image of God and therefore the fulfillment of creation in relationship to God, it becomes a central meaning. And this is why we're called to bring all things into conformity to Christ. Why? Because he is the reference point for all meaning. It's, and this is what the Reformation wanted to return to, right? It's the whole point of the Reformation was the point to that Christ is the final end of all things. The, that That's which, probably a good point to bring our time to because we got... Yeah. A Reformation kind of event happening in a little while. We need a little while too. That's right. So anyway, I think I think that that it was governed, but it could run wild when it, it it kind of cut itself off from that, and that's what the Reformation tried to pull it back to. And and we can debate whether it was successful all the way. <laughs> all right. Anything you want to say, Glenn? Or yeah. Uh, just 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 one quick observation. This comes from Ken Boa, the guy I work with. You know, what Tom was saying about God and the God-word relationship predating the creation of the universe and all of that, there are, there are things about the world, we, we don't think of them this way, but there are things about the world that we experience every day that point us toward eternal realities. So Ken is fond of saying that every day is a microcosm of your life. You are born when you wake up, you go through your day, and at the end of the day, you put on your grave clothes, get in the bed, pull up your shroud, and you die. Pleasant thought. Okay. And you, re- <laughs> and you resurrect the next day. <laughs> and, you resur- and, and you resurrect in the morning. The, the year 
<laughs> is, you know, as, as mythologists have pointed out over and over again, the year is symbolic of birth, birth. life, death, and resurrection. There could be a lot of and, people who go home tonight and don't okay. go to bed. Well, but, 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 but the point is that all of these mythologies were grabbing onto something that was real and true that God built into the fabric of the world to teach us. And because, the, because there are truths that are eternal and because we have a God who communicates who loves us, who speaks, who is the word, the creation itself should be speaking to us. These are analogies that Ken points out as actually, for us, they should be signs of hope because we typically wake up the next morning. (laughs) Just like when we, our bodies die, we will wake up the next morning. So this is a good point to, that's, that's a great point. This also is a good point to bring up. This is why we never, ever have to worry about something to talk about. <laughs> we never run out of things to talk about because we don't know how to stop talking. <laughs> so anyway, one more point. <laughs> uh, just in case you're wondering, the T-shirts are $20, the books are 10 and the glasses are 15 But thanks for coming. We're glad to have you with us. And if you don't want any of those things, that's fine. But uh, Caleb sent me a text to tell me. Uh, yeah, that's because I, I only just got to... Ten hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so thanks for coming. we got to get ready to go to the next event. Thank you.